Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran. It is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Rita D. Sherma um, from the uh, Graduate Theological Union. Um, today, she'll be speaking with me um, for a special episode of the podcast that is centered around this thing called Donham, uh, uh, the Dharma Academy of North America, its genesis, its mandate, its texture, its... It's, you know, whatever we land on. Um, uh, Rita, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for calling me, Raj, and uh, delighted to talk about Dhanam. Yeah, this seems to be, it seems to be timely um, in that this is Dhanam's 20th year. So I think maybe a great place to start would be um, it's Genesis, given that you're a co-founder. And also, uh, I tease that this podcast is about public, ed- is geared towards public education, but uh, part of that is just me being educated in public <laughs> from, from my guests. So I'm sure <laughs> I'll learn a bit about Donham. I've, I've attended uh, the last two years on Zoom and then in person this past year, and I'm really intrigued to hear about the history of Donham. So, so take us back to the beginning of Donham. So when we started Donham, uh, what we noticed is that there was plenty of work being done on uh, South Asian religions, or rather uh, the religions that emerged in ancient South Asia or medieval South Asia. So we were talking really of uh, um, the Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Jain, Sikh, and yoga traditions and, and all of the branches of these various religious traditions. And there was plenty of work being done on it at the American Academy of Religion, the largest uh, annual meeting of scholars of religion in North America, at least possibly internationally. And uh, the work was mostly focused on social scientific studies of these traditions and their various denominations. And uh, that's, that's wonderful and much needed. But there was not a lot of space and not much work being done um, in terms of the philosophies, theologies, ethics, epistemologies, textual hermeneutics, exegesis, um, and all of this kind of um, extensive work that was beyond social sciences and more into humanities. and more affiliated with philosophy of religion, theology, and so on. And we didn't see this work anywhere going on and uh, at the many academic forums that we um, attended. And so I approached, well, uh, some friends and said, you know, this is, uh, we don't have a space for this kind of discourse. Um, South Asian, traditions are not just traditions that do things, uh, they're also traditions that think things. And so perhaps it would be helpful 
to have to have a forum where we could discuss this. But of course, we don't have funding for that because we have a forum. Uh, yeah, you, to set that up would be very expensive. And so what we thought is, at that time, AER used to have something called additional meetings, which now they are calling uh, other events. Um, I thought additional meetings was more dignified. And what, what would happen with these is that learned societies from all over would have a meeting of the AAR, would have a, not a meeting, like a, a mini symposium or one panel or several panels at the AAR in addition to their other activities. So, you know, at this time, while this was going through my head, I was, I ran into someone uh, called Dr. Adarsh Deepak, and he was an astrophysicist and a former professor of the philosophy of science. Um, and he asked about this problem. And I said, well, it's not that it's a problem. I think we need to expand the vision of how these traditions are, are studied, understood, researched, and even applied. Um, and so engaged religion was you know, hot those days. This is 20 years ago. I was still finishing my dissertation. I was still a doctoral student. And I found there was no place to present the type of work I did. I was doing eco-feminist Hindu theology. Where was I going to present that? And so, um, so he he asked me, Dr. Deepak, that um, why don't you create a learned society? Why don't you create an association and and have the meeting held at the AAR, an annual meeting? Um, and you could, of course, do it elsewhere as well if you have funding. I said, well, I don't have funding. I'm a doctoral student. And so, uh, you know, we it's a lovely idea, but it's a, it's a wonderful fantasy. And he said, I'd be willing to fund it. And I was, uh, after being silent and stopping myself from passing out for a few minutes, we were at the Denver airport. I gathered myself and I said, well, yes, well, maybe we can email over this. And then I heard an announcement that my flight was delayed by two and a half hours. And he said, oh, my goodness, I better check with my flight. And he ran away, checked his flight and said, mine's worse. It's delayed for three hours. So we had plenty of time to talk. <laughs> Destiny so, intervened. <laughs> Destiny intervened. We spent uh, two hours over lunch, um, you know, basically developing a structure for how such a forum would look like. And we, you know, I, uh, we did not want to be exclusive. so. We said, let us include the South Asian religions, that is the religions that emerged in South Asia and over, over the ancient or medieval period and all of their branches. And so they have also no space to discuss their philosophies, theologies, thought systems, uh, you know, knowledge systems and so forth, and their potential applications to contemporary concerns. So you know, we had a meeting, he organized the meeting uh, in Virginia where he lives, called several scholars who were uh, known to him, uh, some of them very well known, like Professor Arvind Sharma of McGill University, uh, Dr. Um, Professor uh, Graham Schweig uh, of Christopher Newport University in Virginia and so on. So a group of us gathered and developed a foundational structure on how we would do this. 
And so at that time, there was no um, program unit at the American Academy of Religion for Jainism. Um, Sikhism was just, you know, um, getting its getting up on its feet, and Buddhism has had plenty of spaces. Um, but Tibetan Buddhism wanted to be in conversation with the religions of India because they are now essentially an Indian tradition. Uh, because the, uh, you know, they Vajrayana is an Indian tradition that immigrated to Tibet, con, you know, and uh, married itself to one the traditional shamanic religion. But now it's come out, and the most robust work on it is going on in India and abroad. So that gave us uh, four traditions talking together about uh, certain things. So we wouldn't have a Sikh panel and a Buddhist panel and so forth. Initially, we would have panels that spoke about complex things like textual hermeneutics in context, that is textual hermeneutics in a global diasporic context, for example. Uh, what does it mean to interpret the Gita, not in India, not a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, but in the 21st century and in North America and in our context. What does that, what, what does that look like? Why would it be different? Does it matter? And so forth. And so, you know, when we're, we're looking at this for, for Jane scholars who are looking at this for Buddhist scholars, and then eventually um, we started moving deeper and, and further along and, and uh, essentially approaching subjects that were leading edge. We were the first to do um, climate change and these traditions. What did these traditions have to say about climate, about the climate crisis? This is now everybody's talking, everybody and their puppy is talking about the climate crisis. But this is a, at a time when it was just barely coming up on the um, radar. We did the same thing with um, AI, uh, artificial intelligence. What does this mean for humanity? What does it mean for humanity from a philosophical and theological viewpoint off these four traditions and their denominations, so forth? And we kept on doing this. We did yoga studies, we did tantric studies. And so we, you know, had the word North America in our uh, name. But then we, uh, the acronym became Dhanam, and Dhanam means gift in Sanskrit. And this is a gift of scholarship that we were giving, which uh, was new, which was unusual, which was um, disruptive in a way. Now, without putting words in your mouth, thank you for sharing that fascinating and serendipitous genesis. Um, uh, all the more serendipitous that uh, I connected for my first time with Donham in Denver. There's something, you know, Denver oriented about Donham apparently um, for, for both of us anyways. Um, uh, now, without putting words in your mouth, uh, otherwise put, would you say then the, you indicated the need for this and the extent to which this, um, there was an interest in this, and clearly there, there, there's an interest in what you've done because it's been 20 robust years now. And so now beyond Donham, 
Would you say that the, the the temperature of the AAR in general or scholarship in general, what trends have you noticed that may or may not pertain to um, the, the, the Donham project? Well, let, let me put it this way. I think we've had an impact. And uh, one of the one of our um, members of our advisory board who has served as steering committee chair of Donham is Professor Jeffrey Long. Uh, who teaches at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. He's one of the founders of Dunham. And he has a book series, a well-known book series with uh, Lexington, with Roman and Littlefield, and on um, explorations in Indic studies. And again, that, that includes all these traditions and also Christianity and Islam and so forth that are, but within that context of the link with South Asia. So, he, when he um, launched his series, what he said is, this series is inspired by the work of Dan. And uh, the series has been very successful. And again, it's very interesting that although the series is open to everyone, the people who've taken advantage of this new series are, for the most part, scholar practitioners. And uh, so, um, it, this is the same thing that happened to Dhanam. You know, Dhanam was created for uh, the topics that I, I mentioned that were not being um, addressed elsewhere, but it ended up having a um, larger than normal uh, cohort of scholar practitioners from these different traditions in um, in our work, in our presentations, in our panels, and going out of our panels into developing these forums, such as um, publication fora, such as uh, Dr. Long's series. And then um, it was interesting, the Sikhs uh, eventually had an issue with the term dharma because their community said that connects them too closely with India and they don't want that back yet connection. And so they contacted me and said, you know, we, we regret that we have to leave for a while until things settle down in our community. But it was a Sikh scholar who wanted to start the Journal of Dharma Studies with me. And uh, we did start it together. And then he was, he experienced some, uh, how shall I say, discomfort from his community. Um, and he excused himself, but it really was his idea. And it started with him. And we continue the journal with many other people. So that's, that's a publication side. We also have uh, seven books in publication that are um, not just inspired by Dhanam, but that are really produced from its work, from its panels and the research of its scholars. Then going beyond publication, let's look at um, so these are outside Dhanam, but influenced and informed by that, or inspired by Dhanam. And that includes other program units at the American Academy of Religion. For example, you know, we were doing philosophy and theology, you know, continuously for, this is our 20th anniversary. And a few, just I think in two years before the pandemic, several people came to me 
who had written on theology and philosophy and said, you know, I think it's time for us to, to start a theology unit, a Hindu theology unit, because Buddhist philosophy is already, you know, quite robust, but we, we should start a Hindu philosophy unit and um, a Hindu theology unit while well, we tried. So the AAR said, uh, do a wild card session. We did. It was so successful. We counted 99 or 98 people attending, which is amazing at a conference of that uh, magnitude. And then they said, okay, okay, that was successful. Why don't you do an, um, we did a wild card unit, do an exploratory session, <laughs> which is really the same thing again. So we did another such session that was attended with over a hundred people or so. Anyway, it was very successful. And I was involved in that. Uh, Dr. Graham Schweig was involved in that. Uh, Dr. Frank Clooney was involved in that from Harvard. Uh, a lot of people, um, Lori Patton from Emory. Uh, so, you know, it, we had a very good turnout. And the AAR said, let us think about it and, and shelved it. So the, the same folks came back to me and said, you know, how about, what do you think if we just call it Hindu philosophy? Um, and I said, well, you know, then, then we're giving in, right? We're, we don't have a space for philosophical theology, we just have a space for philosophy. It limits us, right? Why not philosophy and theology? And they said, we've tried and they are like, has not um, accepted it. So let's try philosophy. And that was accepted. These are all folks who were doing this at Dhanam. And then there was the, a cohort developed at the AAR who then created these niche um, program units, including uh, yoga in philosophy and practice, Hinduism in North America, all sorts of other, which would be inconceivable 20 years ago. When we started that. It's fascinating. I was chatting with a student the other day. Uh, I think this was in the context of a tutorial, and uh, they were they they were using the expression "so and so was ahead of their time." So and so was ahead of their time, and I said to them, "Well, that's only from our from our perspective. Perhaps that's the case, but it's rather the case, in my view, that so and so brought the future into the present. So and so was a catalyst for realizing, you know." And so it was Donham ahead of its time, or did Donham actually help manifest a change in scholarship, right? Chicken and egg. Um, but but it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I'm sort of in this podcast abyss. It's it's certainly a thing, it's nothing that I had intended, but here it is. It has a life of its own. It's it's far reaching. It's 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 um, well listened to. And so <laughs> I decided in my in my not so infinite wisdom uh, to uh, to host a podcast reception reception, and, and it was very well attended. It was very enjoyable, but. It was Friday, and I thought I'm not going to risk landing sometime midday Friday. What if, what if they lost the the, the the reservation? What if we can't find the room? What if, you know, who knows? I'm going to come in a day early just in case. So I, I landed Thursday just to be sure everything was in order. So Friday, <laughs> all day Friday, and of course AAR uh, panels don't begin until Saturday morning. So it was like, okay, well, I'm all dressed up with no place to go. Oh. Donna, <laughs> I ended up attending um, the majority of that Friday, and it was it really was um, it, it it gave me an experience of the breadth uh, uh, of what Donham 
has to offer and also of really this this palpable sense of community that one feels there and then i intended the following day because i couldn't miss saturday morning because uh, it was brought to my attention that uh, uh, a book that I contributed to was being reviewed. Uh, Vina Howard's publication on on, on um, the Bloomsbury hand, Handbook of of of, of the gender and and, and philosophy. Indian philosophy. Uh, in Indian philosophy. And so, it, you know, it was. It, it certainly didn't have. Uh, you know, what did I expect? I expected, you know, Indic religions discussed. Um, perhaps a slightly different flavor from the AR, but uh, clearly a roster of well-known scholars for the most part. But I, it really left an impact on me. I really um, quite enjoyed the conversations there um, surrounding the papers and beyond. And so here we are. Here we are with this thing called Donna that's been around for 20 years. Um, who would you say Donham's for? You know, initially Donham was for those people who were not having, who were not able to access a proper forum for their work in these thought traditions of uh, the South Asian religions, that at least the religions that emerged in South Asia. And we found that we had to be walking on eggshells continuously. Um, the <clears throat> the methodology that's now known as autoethnography uh, did not exist at that time. In fact, it's very, it's really quite new. And so there's no autoethnography, there's no autosociology. You have to pretend to have an arm's length. And <clears throat> the fact is, no human being, um, unless they were, you know, <clears throat> in a comatose state for <clears throat> the, their entire life would come out uh, with absolutely no conditioning. Every human being is conditioned, deeply conditioned by their by the life they've led, the experiences they have, the, the views with which they've been brought up, the views that they have developed as a result of their um, encounters. And so none of us are without uh, biases. And these not necessarily negative biases. I mean, I like miniature schnauzers. Uh, that's a bias, but it's not necessarily a bad bias. But the fact is that I am I am not a good person to judge uh, the quality of a let's say a Doberman Pinscher. Although miniature schnauzers, I must say, are one quarter Doberman Pinscher, <laughs> and uh, my little one uh, was uh, very noisy as a result. But these biases prevent us from actually entering into the realm of the other with, with, the, with, the, with the lenses of the other. So I have created this, I, I've worked on developing this uh, over the last 10 years and published quite widely on uh, this concept that I call the hermeneutics of intersubjectivity. That is the lenses one needs to put on in order to enter um, the world of the other while you know, doing what we call epoche or bracketing one's own um, prejudgments. This is a very complex uh, method and it takes a lot of effort and study to be able to apply it. So most scholars are not able to apply it. They, they can't help but apply 
their own lenses. Now, the problem is when you are entering another life world, there are so many nuances. I, I always say there are three levels of understanding, the external, the internal, and what we say in Sanskrit, rahasya, the secret, the esoteric, the mysterious, mystic. Um, and that final level, you're not going to be able to enter that level. There's no way you're going to be able to enter that level unless you are within that tradition. So you can't speak about it. You can only speak from the viewpoint of external. And if you are uh, interviewing the native interlocutor, you know, if you're the interlocutor interviewing your native um, contacts, you essentially will be at the, at most of the rep representing one or few internal perspectives. So a scholar practitioner's perspective is a deep perspective. A scholar practitioner's perspective can, doesn't necessarily, but can go as deep as the rahasya or the, the secret, the esoteric, the mystical. And so the, the perception of scholar practitioners is an experiential perception. It's an immersive perception. And there is a, there's a point at which only they can tell you about that aspect of their tradition. So there's something to be said for that. But until very recently, and even now, the academy is very uncomfortable with that. And the idea is that objectivity must rule, you cannot be objective, and yet uh, Christians have been studying their own traditions and writing on it uh, continuously <laughs> for over 2,000 years. But somehow, those of the global south cannot be objective about their own tradition. So we said, no, you can be completely objective. You can be objective. You can be critical. You can be analytical. You can explore things with the lens of a scholar. And yet you can have knowledge that is internal and esoteric. Oh, fascinating. It's it's um it's attention uh, that goes far beyond Hindu studies. Indeed, it is attention that um, um that is at the core of religious studies as a very as as a discipline in of itself. Um, had a fascinating conversation with Russell McCutcheon the other day on the podcast, and of course he has a particular view of religiosity and studying religiosity and and the 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 desacralization. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there, there are a variety of views and, and the, the delight for me is being able to engage a variety of views. Um, but there is, there certainly is something to be said about familiarity, whether one is a mystic or not, or a practitioner or not. There is certain, there's something to be said about, you know, um, when you're learning different languages, they have different words for the word no. So, uh, so, uh, I have a bit of French. Some of that's for scholarship. Some of that's because I'm in Canada, and you know, you have in most um, Mediterranean languages, you'll have like a verb connaître, which is like to, to cognize, essentially, to know intellectually, and savoir. You know, I know I, to, to be familiar with, to be intimate with. And if you say, you know, I know France in one way, it means yes, you can you can identify France on a map, and, and you're aware of France. And if you say, I know France, in the other sense, it means you've lived there, like you know it, you're familiar with it, and. 
that familiarity need not preclude you know the facts and figures being straight and 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 good scholarship needs to be good, good scholarship without question there's no shortage of brilliant people around to facilitate that and point out when it's not good scholarship having said that uh insider insights um need not be um 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 need not be um uh, opposed or pitted against good scholarship um that's my sense of of, of what you're driving at but at the, at the same time there are a number of scholars now who attend on them who uh to my to my knowledge or at least not publicly are not necessarily practitioners at all they may be they may not even be adopters of tradition they're very much studying from a particular uh lens and yet they seem to thrive in the Dunham space um one that comes to mind is um, you know Laurie Patton who's now president of Middlebury um, and obviously a force to be reckoned with in Hindu studies and as an administrator uh, and as a person, really, in, in my view. And so it seems to, so, so then how do you account for that? Has, has, how do you account for there being so many different relationships to Indian religions um, among those who participate in and benefit from Dhanam? Dhanam's, uh, the, the, the widest slice of Dhanam have scholarly demographic are non-practitioners. Dhanam has always been an inclusive forum. So, you know, let me put it this way. We started with looking at thought systems, right? Philosophy, theology, ethics, and so forth. Uh, epistemology and hermeneutics and all of this, which we weren't doing elsewhere. But then we didn't stop there. We said that this needs to be applied whatever someone's studying because you know it's like if someone's doing anthropology you go to a country and you you sit down and find out what a village does you know during the full moon on august august full moon okay and it does something very special has a festival so forth you know if you're just doing anthropology you'll be asking some questions around you'll be interviewing some of the people you will be observing and essentially you, your, your scholarship can end up as glorified journalism unless you bring in phenomenology and then it's deeper scholarship. It's a, it's a deeper dimension of scholarship. Rigorous scholarship cannot be undermined. Um, so one thing that worries us is a lot of people, uh, especially now, um, both in the Buddhist uh, North American context and the Hindu North American context are not scholars of the tradition, but call themselves scholars of the tradition. Uh, they might have taken 500, you know, yoga, uh, hours of uh, YRT for yoga, and they are now yoga experts, and they've never done any academic studies of it, and their books reach the public, and there's a lack of depth and rigor that comes with non uh with when it which comes with the lack of intellectual critical intellectual uh contact with this material which we learn over not two years one year but over the course of almost a lifetime of study so everyone's welcome Dhanam is an inclusive forum Dhanam is always included everyone. And we have the largest cohort, our largest cohort, as I said, are non-practitioners. 
However, it is also a place where practitioners feel comfortable asking what does Hindu philosophy or, or Jain thought, um, you know, or Vajrayana ideas have to say about um, the ethics of AI or resilience in the face of climate change. And these are things that go beyond study and into the dimension of application. So the question that you're asking is no longer, what does this tradition have to say about a subject? You're asking, how can this tradition ameliorate this problem, mitigate this crisis, provide a resource for this challenge? That These are questions that can be asked by any scholar, but are often most frequently asked by those who practice the tradition. I find I find what you're um, what you're pointing to or what you're identifying so fascinating in that I'm just I'm sort of my mind is reeling with examples of uh, talks I've heard over the years and and various perspectives and 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 my own work and it's okay, so on the one hand um, you know uh, uh, I'm part of a research project that's been commissioned by the International Committee for the Red Cross whose primary interest is international humanitarian law that you know that, that seeks to minimize suffering during um, armed conflict, wartime, a very timely enterprise. And, and they've recently thought, hey, you know, what do Asian traditions have to say about this? Hey, you know, um, what does Hinduism have to say about this? And so I'm currently looking at Ithyasa Puran. I'm looking at the, I did a paper for them on the Mahabharata. Now I'm looking to the Puranas and I myself am learning about codes of conduct embedded in, for example, the Agni and the Padma Puranas. And currently I'm looking at the Bhagavata. This should be done within the next couple of weeks. So it's top of mind. So I'm thinking to myself, this is an example of here is uh, here is the, the the paper takes an etic stance. Sorry, pardon me. The paper takes an etic stance and uh, an outside perspective on how on e uh, but nevertheless it showcases emic perspectives on the use of force um, and and in codes of conduct. And they're looking to this for practical application, which I find fascinating. And yet, by the same token, um, when I teach at the the OCHS, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, it's continuing studies, but it's 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 a it's an etic stance. It's you know it's it, it falls under the academic umbrella, and so part of the reason I founded the School of Indian Wisdom is so I could interlace it with emic perspectives on 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 subjects that are that are very difficult to understand without experience or initiation or training, etc., etc., etc. So I find it. I find that fascinating, the idea that this is looking to scholarship on Indic religions and content from Indic religions with an eye to to application to our current selves and our current world. And yet at the same time, I don't even think that's necessarily, um, one doesn't have to be a practitioner to engage in that. What, what would you feel about that? So, um, you know, We've had so many different uh, panels. Donham has sponsored any number of panels and even full symposia on this various issues. And we've had many, many scholars 
with an ETIC perspective who are not practitioners. Uh, and they have contributed very well to, to the discussion. Uh, and they've contributed uh, considerably to the entire project of Dana. Um, in, in fact, many of them have been highly supportive. You, know, you named uh, Laurie Patton, I could say Fran Francis Clooney from Harvard is another example, uh, the late Joseph Prabhu. And there's so many people. Um, you know, the, the Kenneth Valpe from um, Oxford Center. OCHS, yeah. Yeah, and, he, and he's been involved with Dunham's Journal and so on and so forth. So the, the question is, um, but, you know, what is the world asking for right now? Uh, not the academic world, the world out there. And they're asking, you know, much of my work is on the intersection of uh, religion or spirituality, theology, philosophy, ethics, etc., in, in intersecting with sustainability studies. Now, that's not the same as religion and ecology. Uh, sustainability studies includes um, a social justice, environmental justice, economic equity, and ecological restoration, among many other things. And it's really based in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And we just published a book on this. Uh, um, in, the name of the book is Religion and Sustainability, Interreligious um, Resources, Interdisciplinary Responses. And uh, it's in the United Nations SDG series, Springer. There are, there are EMIC scholarship in this book. The, there are also ETIC contributors to it. They're all thinking together. It, it, it actually arises from a major conference, which I convened, and they're thinking together on these subjects. That's their thinking interreligiously doesn't mean that they're thinking about each other's religions. It means that they're, that they're focusing on one thing from many directions. I and mean, this is what Bannon did for 20 years. And now, you know, when when Dhanam started, uh, there was no Jain unit. There was no unit for Jainism. Um, for for many, many years, Dhanam was the only place that Jainism could be represented. Then they got their own unit. But Dhanam started with a two-day symposium and then went to one and a half day symposium. Six six different panels, that's almost a, you know, between 25 and 30 scholars. And uh, that's a lot of research that is produced annually for Dhanam. And Dhanam sets the tone of that research. So, you know, when we look at, we looked at issues this year of indigeneity. You know, we keep on hearing a lot about the indigenous uh, perspective. And we think it would be the native peoples or the first nations of North and South America. But of course there's indigenous people everywhere. You know, Palestinians consider themselves indigenous. Um, Bedouin consider themselves indigenous. Hindus consider Hinduism an indigenous tradition if they're in South Asia. So indigeneity is a complex concept. And what does it mean to transfer indigeneity? If you and I 
are no, not, we may be of South Asian heritage or ancestry, but we're living in North America and we are practitioners of the Hindu faith. What does that mean? How do we make Canada or US um, indigenous for us? You know, uh, because of the tremendous um, connection between terrain, land, soil, water in the Hindu world and one's own spiritual formation. So these concepts, okay, these concepts uh, are concepts that you don't see elsewhere. You know, the dharma and indigeneity, we had indigenous scholars come and speak about their perspective with us in relation to us. So Dhanam has been doing work that now is expanding. The field of interreligious studies, Dhanam was doing this 20 years ago. Um, so, so now, you know, we are, this is our 20th anniversary and just at the close of the AAR is Thanksgiving every year. And uh, right after Thanksgiving, our patron and my co-founder of Dhanam um, very suddenly passed away. And uh, he's a remarkable person. And I want to just give a tribute to him. Um, he was an astrophysicist. He was the publisher of the Journal of Small Satellites. He established, he was a professor. Then he established a company called STC, which Science and Technology Corporation, which worked extensively with NASA and in remote sensing and all of these different fields. And yet he remained in, um, a person who was truly interested in the philosophy behind everything we do. Why do we do what we do? And what is the rationale for it? And why does it matter? So Dr. Adarsh Deepak um, was a major force in this, major force for good. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And, and thank you for offering that tribute. That was something on my mental list to circle back to, but it came up organically. Um, may he rest in peace and may he reap the benefits of his good works um, at Donham and beyond. And we had actually planned this interview um, before this shocking news of earlier this week. And here we are. I just felt that, okay, well, it's sort of a, there's a rite of passage happening. I could sense that. And then a, and the mind latched on to, oh, it's the 20th anniversary. Okay, well, okay, we'll do an honor and 20th anniversary. But clearly beyond the 20th anniversary, it's the end of an age. It's the end of an epoch for Donham. And um, it, it, it begs the question, what next? What is the future of Donham? Not that yes. any of us know, but... You know, what, what What do we suspect? The, the other thing that's happened is that um, the other traditions, which, as I said, Jainism's obvious example, yoga studies is another example, that didn't have their own space in the um, academic uh, sphere, now do have their own robust spaces in the academic sphere. At the same time, um, one of the things that, we have found um, difficult to deal with is that, that why did we choose the term dharma? We chose the term, term dharma because 
you know, dharma has is a multivalent word. It means many things in many languages to um, several religions. But all of them also use it to mean a body of teachings. And so we chose that term, the Sikhs used to say dharam, but the rest uh, use the term dharma. Buddhists will recognize it right away. They call themselves Bodha dharma and Jaina dharma and so forth. And they say Hindu dharma. And so we chose that term so that we don't have to say South Asian because these religions are no longer in South Asia. They are global. They're global. And there are people who are fourth generation or fifth generation outside of South Asia who are practicing these traditions. So to call it South Asian, um, disenfranchises the diaspora. It also disenfranchises people of uh, other races and ethnicities who are now uh, practitioners and scholar practitioners of these traditions. So dharma became for us a global term that can be comfortably used, that's indigenous to these traditions, all of them, um, the Sikhs were uncomfortable, not initially, but after a few years, not the scholars so much, but the communities, uh, because they want to create, because there's political issues involved that I don't, that I won't go into. But the terminology was there for a reason. It was to be as inclusive of the global um, stretch of these traditions as possible. And it was an attempt to take the study of these traditions out of the ghetto of South Asia. Yeah, that's fascinating. You preempted one of the questions that I had in mind. Of course, as you probably well know, these are very organic conversations. I do have a handful of questions in the back of my brain, but we see what comes. And the, the question was, you know, why Dharma? Um, what does it, you know, what, what relevance does it have to the organization? And I do find it fascinating. So also, um, I inherited this podcast in 2018. I think I might have done two, maybe three podcasts in 20 and 2019. And then uh, the pandemic hit and my spidey sense went off and said, you know, this is my war effort. <laughs> People need content, but production, here we are. Um, 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 but also my my instinct was that Hindu studies wasn't the right fit. I inherited a podcast called Hindu Studies or New Books in Hindu Studies here on the New Books Network. And it's it's functional and there's there's the you know it, it, there's applicability there, but it's not quite the right vibe. It doesn't create space for so many monographs and collected volumes that pertain to to what and and you know part of the reason why south asia is a technical term that i use here and there but part of the reason why south asia irks me on a personal level is that you know, throughout my university years or before no one had any clue beyond south asianists <laughs> what south asia was i think now there's more of a sense of what south asia is um and sort of in the in the in the public imagination, and so I think of it as sort of Indic civilization. You know, uh, 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 Indian religions, uh, Indian in terms of civilizational India, more than a nation state, of course. And so there really is no good fit. There is no perfect fit for this ecosystem of ideas that comes from geographical South Asia. And and I suppose going with with the Dharma root is is just as good as as any. Now. 
are there um are you happy going with the Dharma route? Is that still core to the the identity of the organization? Is it something that has to, you know, that will be shifted? You know, can you say a bit about that? Yes, yes. The the term, you know, we're trying to do a, a certain type of work. That work is leading edge. We want to continue to be disruptors in a good way. Uh, we want to continue to bring forward into the present what we see in the future. Um, if the terminology gets in the way, we will we will have to set it aside. You know, nobody calls our um, nobody calls Dhanam anything but Dhanam, and and we deliberately have always called it not Danam or Danam or. Yeah, we've always called it Dhanam because it was meant to be, you know, it was meant to be uh, the Sanskrit word, Dhanam. And so it can just remain that because the traditions that we are working with, uh, Sanskrit is one of the roots of all of them, is one of the roots of all of them. And so there's, there's not a problem using the term Dhanam. Now, I would say that the Sikhs have effectively left us because we have the term dharma in the long form of the organization's name. And we were using it to be inclusive. They use the term dharam, which is a you know, Punjabi way of saying dharma. Uh, but then they said, no, we don't want to use that term. We want to use the term Sikhi. So we said, you can use any term you want. You are welcome to be here. You're welcome not to be here. You're always, you know, included if you wish to be. But, you know, because of the departure of the Sikhs, we have three traditions that use this term. But the problem is now this term has been politicized in India. We were using the term before it was politicized. We were using the term 20 years ago when no one heard of the politicians who are using, who are politicizing this term. This term is thousands of years, well, millennia, over a millennia old. I mean, it's, it's more than a millennia old, about two millennia old. Uh, but thousands, thousands is correct. It's thousands of years old, literally. Thousands of years old. So for us to be forced to jettison it because someone is using it in an uncomfortable way in a country far away from where we live, work, and have our being, is, is an oppression to us. And yet we have, to, uh, we have to go with that because this is the thing that one of the things that Dhanam seeks is full en enfranchisement of people who practice these traditions, be they the, be they the, uh, you know, of South Asian origin or, you know, white or black. I have students who are Hindu, who are black, who are uh, East Asian, who are Latino, um, Latina. I have students of all sorts who consider themselves Hindu, who have taken um, Diksha, in other words, been initiated into the tradition, um, basically 
the idea of being not disenfranchised is very important to our work. You know, that's why we did not use the term South Asia. We're not looking at South Asia. We're looking at ideas and practices that are in South Asia and international, global. You know, thank you so much for touching on the the other um, sore spot or um, with the term with it, which is its uh, politicization, shall we say, in various contexts. Um, and my part of I think what my spidey sense was going on of, going off about regarding the podcast is I thought there'll come a time in a decade or so when the word Hindu itself <laughs> will be. Um, will be too challenging to use without it being associated with various um, various thrusts that are fairly recent in history uh, of, of, of South Asian religion or Indic religions. And so it, it, perhaps Donham can be Donham without... <laughs> without its constituent words, perhaps other constituent words are needed. Perhaps we'll figure that out. Perhaps clearly without question, I could feel it on my bones. It's, it's, um, it's, um, it's what it's, 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 it's pralaya for, for some new cycle, right? It's, uh, and what that looks like, I'm sure you'll, 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 you will be instrumental, um, you and the core, um, members of the steering committee and, and the community will be instrumental in co-creating um, its evolution because it's, 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 it's evolving. I imagine that one imagines that based on what I'm picking up from what you're saying, that it's a response to a need, right? It's a response to a need. And it's also um, anticipating, you know, uh, anticipating what is to come. And and really, I find myself so often in a jungle with a machete and and not consciously deciding to create a village or a settlement. But it's just, I just happen to have a machete and I'm in a jungle and I'm, you know, clearing space. And here we are all of a sudden, you know, some spaces cleared in online education are useful to many people. Some spaces cleared in podcasting or, or podcasting, but in religions are useful in a variety of spaces. And I really get the sense that Donham is doing the same. And I think you may have your finger on the pulse of the future of um, the subfield um, and the ways in which it relates to religious studies at large and the ways in which it sort of... Um, it, it 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 engages the scholar practitioner tension, and I just I just really feel that what it was twenty years ago at its inception, being ahead of its times, I get the feeling it, it still is going to be that, and you'll probably pick up fairly shortly what needs to the ways in which you need to pivot. You know, feel free to comment on any of this. It's interesting because you know, Vanam, as you said, it started in Denver for you, <laughs> and. It started in Denver, period. It started 20 years ago in Denver. And the 20th anniversary is in Denver. And that is when we lost our co-founder, president, and patron. So part of it is, you know, that our patron, you know, he was also a scholar, as well as being a Renaissance person and doing many other things. And, but he was a, he was a philanthropist who did not interfere in his philanthropy. He simply supported us. He agreed with what we were trying to achieve in an overarching way, you know, to break the boundaries 
and bonds that had been put on us and to breathe free. And he supported that effort and fully and generously. And he would put in, he was very interested in this conversation with um, the indigenous scholars, uh, North American indigenous scholars, for example, which you won't see too many places. Um, and yet it's a South, South dialogue in a way, uh, because although they're North American, they're coming out of colonial, there's a decoloniality issue that we both, that we face from both the global South and the North American indigeneity issues. And he was right on top of that. He's the one who recommended it. Uh, so, you know, his departure is uh, a departure of, of many things. Um, and it happens right with Denver. I mean, it's the coincidences are really quite remarkable. Um, and so we, we feel like we are going to have our meeting soon and we're going to organize the next Dhanam. The issue is that being at the American Academy of Religion is helpful for many things. Uh, it's also helpful for us to see what others are doing. For example, you know, there's contemplative studies is a new and emerging well, not so new, but definitely still an emerging field. But, you know, now you have it, Emory and Brown, all sorts of places. So it's, but it's very limited. It's limited to intellect, intellection. It's limited to mindfulness practices and so on. But contemplative studies, if you're including these traditions, including the rest of Buddhism outside, you know, uh, mindfulness Buddhism, that the entire huge, vast world of Buddhist contemplative practices that overlap and intersect like a Venn diagram with Hindu and Jain contemplative practices. We do very similar things, and yet we do them for very different reasons, you know? And that itself is a fascinating issue. So Dhanam has one series, publication series on contemplative studies, and we've already just submitted our um, manuscript on Jainism. We've already published our manuscript on the Hindu world and the Buddhist experiences coming up. And we're looking at Buddhism, not just in this, you know, um, mindfulness, insight meditation, follow your breath, you know, be in the moment. We're looking at the uh, and the aesthetics, the beauty, the the worship rituals, all of these um, mandalas and the beauty, the sheer beauty of the Buddhist meditation practices across Asia and which are now across the world because Asians have also have come across to North America and Europe. And so the Buddhist practice is no longer just from a Western Protestant lens called Protestant Buddhism. We're going beyond that. Yeah, I'm sure that in your upcoming committee meeting with the 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 you know with the driving forces at Donham, you will um, manage this impasse and sort out you know what next steps are um, for its continuation. Um, in terms of folks who may want to find out more about Donham, where can they go? Dhanam has its own website, but we're updating that. Uh, but the best 
place to go actually is the American Academy of Religions uh, programs. Uh, over 20 years, if you put Harma Academy of North America, it should come up because that's, they use the entire uh, terminology. But going forward, we will not be using the whole terminology. The thing is that you brought up Wait, the- Just, just the, the point you just made is, is um, worth um, clarifying or stressing. You will not be using the full terminology going forward? We will be we will be attempting to just use Dhanan. Mm. First of all, everybody who is in any way familiar with Dhanan knows the organization, this learned society as Dhanan. And the second reason is we don't want to be associated with the politicization of this beautiful and ancient word. And we don't want to be confused with it and conflated with it. Thank you for for uh, clarifying and, and disclosing that. But personally, I, I mean, personally, in terms of not for me and my you know my sort of attendance. I mean, personally, also with an eye to reaching a broader public, marketing messaging and all that that I've been pulled into since dissertating into this. Who knows what that I'm doing as an independent scholar? <laughs> seems to be working for me, but in, in my personal perspective wonderful things thank you that's mighty kind of you but personally from the perspective of such a one interested in messaging in 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 this arena um and he's even i I will admit personally as an attendee um uh, it really resonates to steer clear of of that word for for reasons mentioned and um donham's such a beautiful word uh that uh, i think it works i I couldn't help, but uh, I maybe it was a subliminal messaging of Donham. I showed up to um, uh, I showed up on Friday because you know I checked out the room and it was <laughs> it was eight a.m. Uh, or it was ten a.m. My my body clock time, but um, I was ready to go. And uh, Susan Lamb was sitting at the desk, and we we got to chatting. And I thought, you know, are, are you, yeah, are you not uh, Hawaii? I'll be headed to Hawaii for for a retreat. And then I couldn't resist. I had I had a couple of scholars in mind that I wanted to gift my, uh, the recent uh, stories. Behind the pose, poses book too, and uh, but I just I I I couldn't resist. I pulled the copy out and said, you know, this is a gift for you. For, for this is a don, donum for donum. Here's your duction for all of your your service that you do. Um, so I think it's a beautiful word, and very meaningful. I, I just want to take this opportunity to um, offer a word of gratitude to. Um, Susan Lamb, who lives in Hawaii. Uh, she happens to be the partner of Professor uh, Ramdas Lamb. And um, this is a husband and wife team that has strongly, strongly supported Dhanam and done so much service and seva for the effort of, you know, literally a thousand scholars. So I want to give them um, a word of gratitude along with all the other people who have been central to this, including Jeffrey Long, Lucimita Peterson, um, Ravi Gupta, um, Chris Chappell, Christopher Chappell, um, and just so many others. And let us uh, say a word of acknowledgement and thank you to um, uh, the Shakti of the dearly departed uh, Adarsh as well. Yes. Um, if it weren't for Professor Adarsh Deepak, 
finding me looking miserable in an airport, this would have never happened. And um, the reason I was looking miserable is because um, it's another, I, I had just been at a, at a forum where a panel, which was discussing uh, Hinduism. Um, so this, this, this panel was five men, uh, five scholars, uh, five white men who were discussing what is the definition of Hinduism. And the conclusion they all came to from their various angles was that it, um, it doesn't actually exist. It, it isn't a real thing. It, it, this is, there's no such thing. So at the end of the panel, uh, two hours of hearing this, I raised my hand and they said yes. And I said, so, so you're basically telling me that, that um, 2,000 years of practice across billions of people um, with literally thousands of scriptures, theologies, and practices, um, all of this is not real. All of this is not, cannot be called Hinduism. We cannot say that it's something that arises from an ancient past, and it's one of the tributaries of the massive landscape of Indian religions that arose, you know, millennia ago. And their response to me was, you are reifying something that is a false category. Hinduism is not real. You are reifying it. And that is unacceptable. So I said, in, if there is no Hinduism, then there are no Hindus. They said, absolutely. I said, thank you. In that case, I do not exist. And I walked out. At that point, several other scholars walked out with me. And they ended up becoming a cohort, the beginning cohort of Dhanam. And Dhanam is not about Hinduism. It's about the ability to define these traditions, not only according to how scholars define them, but also according to their own self-understanding. The point is that their self-understanding is not the only way we study them, but their self-understanding and that of its scholars, that of its scholar practitioners should also be taken into account. Mm. Thank you for sharing that obviously very personal um, story about the Genesis, indeed the birth of Donham and sharing um, what was um, really the labor pains of that birth and the, the difficulties um, faced with and, and um Clearly, this is something you're passionate about, creating space for various voices of those who practice and study um, these rich traditions that we feature on this podcast and that we engage in in our scholarly lives. Um, and so given your passion and commitment, um, given the need for such a space, um, I would imagine that Donham has a bright future. Uh, uh, it... It's just a question of um, the transformations uh, required uh, of, of all things under this way of time. Um, was there anything else about um, one question, one practical question, now that we've waxed poetically about 
transformations beneath the beneath the sway of <laughs> of Kalima. Um, uh, how do scholars uh, who, are, who are listening? How might they? Um, um, how might they contribute to a panel? Perhaps even suggest a panel. What is that administrative process like? So the way it works is that we usually have a uh, a celebratory dinner and awards dinner. Actually, we give a book award, which is um, a financial award and a recognition to one book per year. Um, and this is called the awards dinner. At that dinner, the dinner is also a business meeting so that people are able to there. Um, we have a little a space put aside where we can at the Thanam annual dinner put forth uh, the business meeting aspect. That is, what is what are what are the themes going to be? Or is there going to be an overarching theme? And it, how is it going to connect to uh, the contemporary moments? And that's where scholars can, you know, and, and this is very helpful because the people who are invited to this dinner, because Anam is not going to invite the 12,000 scholars of the AAR to dinner, um, the people invited to the dinner are the steering committee, the advisory board, and so forth, but also the um, all the presenters, all the presenters of any given year. So that allows them to have continuity. If they liked what they did, they can then move that forward. Um, <laughs> so many layers. So so I attended all the Donna panels on Friday because everything was fine for the reception Friday night and it was great. And then I attended Saturday morning because they were covering the book I contributed to. Um, and, and, and then I got this lovely email from Susan Lamb saying, hey, um, why don't you come out tonight to to Donham dinner, you know, and, 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 you know, in recognition of, uh, I think I contributed via Zoom last year to a panel that was looking at um, Rabbi on the Ganges. I think I, I contributed to that via Zoom uh, book review panel. And, um, and, and, and there was something, uh, something that about the email it came through and, and, and she even mentioned in anticipation of future involvement as well as past involvement, you know, we'd like to invite you to dinner. Clearly there was space and, and I said, sure, why not? And it, it was lovely. It was a lovely opportunity to connect with some scholars I've chatted with on the podcast and I've seen via email. And then we all got to suggest a topic. <laughs> that was our homework. <laughs> Ram Slam was, you know, you need to all suggest a topic <laughs> before before dessert. And I got to suggest a, a narrative. But I believe this year the, the idea from what I gleaned from that encounter, and, and I know that um, you were on well, so you were on, you were away this year. What I gleaned is that there'll be a topic. There'll be though they will be there will be chosen a topic of, uh, for the entire event. And I believe that's new, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong. Actually, that's how Danum started. For many many years, we would have thematic. Um, thematic conferences. So the Dhanam Symposium is it's really a conference, it's a one and a half day conference before the AAR. Um, the thing is that we used to have it thematic for, for a very long time until so many people wanted to get their themes in that we felt, okay, um, in order to accommodate more people and be more inclusive of other ideas, we um, let go of our thematic uh, 
programming. And it's a little bit unfortunate because thematic programming helps publications. The two of the three books that are coming out in the contemplative studies series are coming from Dhanam uh, thematic programs on, how is it called? Meditation, prayer, worship, and veneration. It's called um, two, two years worth of, of, um, of uh, papers, of articles, of original research. But this year, we just decided that we're going to give it a try again to have a thematic program and um, just to go back for a year to see how that works out. But the way we do it is that the steering committee takes uh, suggestions from the scholars who have presented recently. And then the, the steering committee tries to take each of those su suggestions as component of something like a larger rubric. So, you know, to fit them within the context of a larger rubric. And then that larger rubric becomes the theme. And uh, sometimes we'll have to jettison some, some suggestions for the following year. But in general, this is what we try to do. Fascinating. Is there anything else uh, that you'd like to touch on about, um, you know, the Donham Project? Uh, it's, 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 it's nature, it's mission, it's mandate, it's future. I think that we need to move back towards his original interest in publishing original research. Um, and uh, that is something that Dr. Deepak had as a uh, desire very close to his heart. And while we're talking about him, I have to mention a few other people, particularly his wife. His wife, uh, Pat Deepak. Uh, I was hoping you would. Yeah. Was uh, an absolute foundation for Dhanam. Um, the thing is, the, the reason that Dhanam succeeded is because it was human. It wasn't this cold, um, concrete, um, steel-like approach of the rest of um, major academic forums. She brought in the warmth and uh, the genuine personal touch. She would pack packets of uh, water and, and, you know, granola bars and, and other things that are, became very helpful to people um, as they were going through an entire day of conferencing. And so these little touches made them incredibly personal. And so we have a list of a thousand scholars who just kept coming back simply for the personal touch, the relaxation they felt that they were welcome not just as academics or scholars or researchers, but as human beings. And uh, so we found that, you know, that the dinner is the same thing. When before the pandemic, we'd have 40 as our limit, but usually people would want to, you know, go beyond that and we'd have to say no, <laughs> no. And so that warmth, a lot of that, it belongs directly to this, um, founding, you know, the uh, founding father, so to speak, but also to his wife, Kathy, but to whom we owe enormous gratitude. And also Dr. Rajinder Gandhi and his wife, Jyoti, who are the, uh, our book awards are from their generous um, gift. It's their generous gift. So much 
appreciation to them as well. Thank you for making mention. So uh, as you're well aware, I'm a textual scholar, but uh, I really don't know how, I don't know how it is the case that I didn't study people. living people. Uh, and so I, I, you can't help, I can't help but pay attention and sort of glean what I can about situations. And so, uh, you know, a, a number of things were impressed upon me for my first uh, Donham encounter, at least in person, the year before it was my first one, it was online. I was from, from one panel, um, was the the the, the tireless uh, efforts, particularly of Susan Lamb and, and and Pat Deepak and and uh, this year at least, or you know, uh, their son Ravi and you know the, the tireless efforts, and beyond that, um, the sense of bandhu was palpable to me. It was it was, it was abundantly clear that I was entering a community, and there was a there was a communal. Whether well, people had been there for years or just it was their first year, it was that was it was a, a warm and cordial space where. Um, you know the the panels were fascinating, the ones that I engaged. I mean, but the, what re- what was really impressed upon me was that I was fed much more than intellectually, and um, that's that's extraordinarily valuable for in the scholarly world. I feel. Yes, and we hope and expect uh, um, Dr. Deepak San Ravi Deepak to continue working with us. We hope he will, um, because he has been uh, integral, uh, especially to the technical aspects. Over the over the years, but he's also the, the one who put together the panels for AI. Herman AI was was him. Uh, so you know the, the thing is that too often uh, the academy is a cold cold place, and it doesn't need to be. Especially um, the way that we let's look at it this way: it's not that Sudanam so is a place for both the social scientific study of religions, but also the humanistic study, so that we include the humanities. We don't leave the humanities out and just look at politics, gender, economics, and so forth. We look at the humanistic aspect, and in that, we live it. So Dhanam embodies its uh, respect for the humanities, and its respect for the humanities is embodied through um, the kind of things that you were mentioning, you know, um, taking care of people's uh, needs for water, for food, for uh, for company, for what um, most of our scholars call satsang. Yeah, it's it's so resonant uh, and synergistic in that that was precisely the impetus behind holding the reception for really anybody interested in Indian religions, but particularly those who knew of the podcast, but anyone is welcome. And New Books Network, uh, you know, generously sponsored um, the, the the reception insofar as we, we had fine food and drink, and I was more than happy to donate the administrative and, hey, listen, if I could host people online, what kind of host would I be if I could host them in the flesh every once in a while? Um, so it, that that really was the the goal, just to facilitate community and hold space for 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 us to get together. Um, so we've been, perhaps we'll have even greater collaboration next year between the reception in Donham and and beyond. I want to thank you for appearing on the podcast and speaking so openly and candidly about um, all things Donham. Thank you so much, Raj, for having me and also for congratulations on your new work with the Red Cross and for the book. I mean, we all love your new book. The stories behind the poses. The stories behind the poses, yes. 
I figure everybody's heard of it. Um, um, who knows? I'm sure I've mentioned it. Yeah. Thank you for the gift of the book. And uh, also, we're delighted that you are now part of the American Academy of Religion Community because you bring so much, so much richness to it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed the book and uh, it seems to be taking on a life of its own and we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. So, um, all right. For those of you listening, uh, we have been speaking with um, Dr. Rita D. Sherma, uh, who's director and associate professor at uh, the GTU Center for Dharma Studies um, um, and also one of the founders of Donham, uh, a, a need and an idea and some gumption planted a seed 20 years ago that has flourished uh, over that time. And it'll be fascinating to see what comes next. Until next time, keep well, um, keep safe, keep saying, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the need for community at the Academy and beyond. Take care.